We are continuing our new class series, Discipleship 102. The 12 disciples have already received Discipleship 101 at the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus' ministry has grown substantially. He's now got something like 70 disciples whom he sent out to preach and teach and heal. But it's like they've got training wheels on as long as Jesus is around. And Jesus knows his time is growing short. He's told his disciples he will be arrested, tried, tortured, and executed And after three days, he'll rise again. I mean, he's told them that plain, but they still don't understand. They don't absorb this as being an actual literal fact. They think he must be telling them a parable. They don't understand that Jesus is about to be gone. Jesus knows, and he knows these disciples need a lot more training before they're ready to operate without him physically there. When we left off last week, Jesus and the disciples had traveled from Galilee down to Jerusalem, passing through Samaria on the way. As they walked, let's take a look at who the political players are. They will be entering the story soon. Herod the Great, the one who built the huge temple in Jerusalem, died shortly after Jesus was born. Palestine was split up among his sons, as shown in the pink, green, and yellow regions on the map. Each color represents an area given to each of Herod's sons. And don't be confused by the fact that his sons were also called Herod. He named them all after himself. Um, they all had a second, second, a different second name. The tan bit, the Decapolis, was not given to Herod's sons. That's a Gentile area ruled by a coalition of 10 cities. Notice on the map that Jesus and the disciples are moving from the green area ruled by Herod Antipas to the pink area that had been given to Herod Archelaus. The pink area is by far the most important politically. As soon as he gained power, Herod Archelaus had to quell a revolt. You see, just before his father, Herod the Great, died, the people had revolted because Herod the Great had installed a golden eagle over the entrance of the temple. Like an idol, right? That you have to like walk right through under. There was a huge protest, of course, and Herod the Great, had burned the Jewish protesters to death. They were students and their teachers. It was horrible. But unrest over this horrific incident continued. And when he came to power after Herod the Great died, Herod Archelaus felt threatened. So one Passover Eve, he ordered the slaughter of everyone in the temple. 3,000 worshipers died. This is just an example of his many cruelties and excesses. The Jews and the Samaritans hate Herod Archelaus. They finally demand he be deposed by Rome and his reign ends ignominiously after only 10 years. You know he had to be bad if the Jews and the Samaritans joined together to get rid of him. 
Well, Rome responds by banishing Herod Archelaus to Gaul and replacing him with a prefect um, that is basically a governor. But the civil unrest continues. This area of Palestine may not be at war, but war is coming. That first prefect, Caponius, only lasts three years. He's replaced by Marcus Ambivalus. <laughs> I think that name is hilarious. Who, three years later, is replaced by Annius Rufus. Annius Rufus is replaced by Valerius Gratus when Jesus is just coming of age. Valerius Gratus pads his pockets and gratifies allies by deposing Annas, the longtime high priest. Over a period of 11 years, Valerius Gratus sells the position of high priest four times, finally setting up Caiaphas, Annas's son-in-law, as high priest. Well, this is a stroke of luck for Annas, who is still highly respected by the Jewish community. Annas works the reins of power in the background together with his son-in-law, the high priest Caiaphas. Valerius Gratus is replaced by Pontius Pilate, just as Jesus begins his ministry. Pontius Pilate is a much stronger ruler. When Pontius Pilate is in Jerusalem, he stays in the palace there. But for the most part, he spends his time up in Caesarea Maritima on the coast. In movies, he's always shown as a weak character, but that's completely wrong. He is a Roman knight, a power level just below that of a senator, and he commands military troops. It is the Jerusalem ruled by Pontius Pilate that Jesus and his disciples are heading for today. As they near Jerusalem, Jesus enters the village of Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomes him. Assuming Jesus is following his own rules of what to do when ministering in a village, we know Martha must be a prominent citizen in the town. She even owns her own home with no man in sight. Well, obviously, all those disciples aren't going to fit in anyone's home, but I imagine Martha is quickly trying to arrange lodging and meals for the whole group. But while Martha is busy, the Greek here is di diakonian. She's literally being a deacon. She's deaconing. <laughs> Her sister Mary sits at Jesus' feet and simply listens as he teaches. The pictures almost always show her like this in a Western understanding of what it means to sit at someone's feet. But I think it probably looks more like this. The men are probably reclining at the table, talking with each other while the women serve. Mary simply sits at Jesus' feet out of the way, probably settling against the wall to listen unobtrusively. Martha, obviously frustrated, comes to Jesus and says, don't you care that Mary has left all the serving to me? Tell her to help me. But Jesus says, oh, Martha, you care so much and are agitated about so many things. But only one thing is actually necessary. And it is the thing Mary has chosen. 
it will not be taken away from her. Poor Martha, my heart goes out to her. How embarrassing, how humiliating, how infuriating. (laughs) She's gotten a taste of what the disciples have had all along. The disciples have misunderstood Jesus so many times, and he's told them over and over that they are getting it wrong. They have to see with new eyes and let go of how they think things should be. Now, this chart may look familiar if you were in our class series on the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is a set of teachings collected and organized by Matthew. Luke has many of these same teachings. Many of Luke's are in a collection that we call the Sermon on the Plain because that's where he set the teachings. But regardless of how the writers arrange the teachings, in each case, Jesus is explicitly addressing his disciples. Matthew puts the teachings in two large groupings. One is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and the second is a big grouping in chapter 10 when Jesus sends the 12 disciples, the original 12, out on their own for the first time. Luke has a big chunk of these teachings in the Sermon on the Plain in his chapter 6, but the other big chunk he puts here in chapters 11 and 12, right after the story about Mary and Martha. And once again, the teaching is specifically directed at the disciples. Other people definitely listen in. Jesus and the disciples cannot get away from the crowds. But this teaching is primarily intended to be between Jesus and his disciples. This is Discipleship 102. It is here that Luke tells about Jesus teaching the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. Here is where Jesus tells them to be persistent with their knocking and their asking. Here is where he tells them God is far more generous in providing for us than any parent. Jesus says, don't worry, God will provide for all your needs. But wait a minute. There are a lot of poor people in the world here and now, and also back in Jesus' day. We know that God loves them too. So why are they poor? Why doesn't God provide for them too? Well, God actually has provided for them. There is more than enough in this world for all of us. The only reason there are poor and starving people is because of our own selfishness and greed. Period. The end. We are the problem. But Jesus is not addressing that particular problem in this particular teaching. Luke's version helps make that clear. First, we need to ask, what is the context when Jesus tells the disciples that God will provide all your needs? What is Jesus' overall lesson plan here? What specifically is he teaching the disciples to do? Well, He's teaching them how to continue to spread the good news after he's gone. He's teaching them how to make it clear to all the people that God's kingdom is here. He's already given them the power to be billboards for God. They can already heal people and make them whole. But now Jesus tells them to not take anything with them. 
He says people will, or mostly will, welcome them into their homes. It is in this context that Jesus says God will provide even more abundantly than any earthly parent. Where Matthew said the Father will provide all your needs, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, you as earthly parents care for your children's needs. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The Holy Spirit is the gift. The Father shares himself, his very essence with us. That is his provision to us. We're the ones who are to provide each other with food and drink and shelter out of the abundance God has already given us. The disciples may indeed go hungry and suffer hardship at the hands of others, but they will never lack the very presence of God. They will always be full of the spirit and whole. Then Jesus teaches the disciples something that is so important that both Matthew and Luke record it. Jesus says, when an unclean spirit leaves someone, it travels through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it takes seven other spirits worse than itself back to its former dwelling place, and the person is worse off than before. So this is a lot to unpack. It's in Matthew 12, 43 and 45, and Luke 11, 24 through 26. What I'm hearing in this is that it's not enough to simply cure someone of whatever ails them. The important part is to be healed and made whole. The point is to be filled up with life, with the living water of the Spirit. I wonder if that's why Jesus refers to the unclean spirit as looking for waterless places to dwell, places that do not have living water. Maybe. I know that our illnesses can become so familiar that our relationships are built on top of them. Unhealthy patterns can take root. It is common, for example, for an abused person to get to a safe place in a crisis and then go right back to their abuser. Healing someone involves more than curing the immediate disease or crisis. It must also involve being filled with life, with living water, with the spirit and sustenance of God. It is an important warning to the disciples. Don't get so caught up in the billboards that you forget that the real good news is that God is here to make us whole in deeper ways. At this point, one of the women in the crowds hollers, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. (laughs) Even Jesus gets heckled. Jesus answers, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep their eye on it. We're moving to a story now that only shows up in chapter three of John's gospel. It's the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and not just any Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is sort of like a Jewish Senate and Supreme Court all rolled into one. 
The Sanhedrin is a very big deal, and it's headed by Caiaphas, the high priest. We know the Sanhedrin is out to get Jesus' blood at this point. We don't have any idea when the Nicodemus story actually happens chronologically because John tends to put stories wherever they suit him theologically. But it makes sense that it would happen around this time when Jesus has become very famous and is perceived by the Pharisees as a major threat. His teachings are well known and discussed at length by the Pharisees as they try to figure out a way to capture and kill him. Nicodemus, however, is torn. He thinks the Pharisees may have got it badly wrong. He's got to speak to Jesus, but he needs to do it in secret. So Nicodemus waits until night falls. Then he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we leaders know you are a teacher who has come from God. You could not do the wonders, the signs, the miracles that you do unless God were with you. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now this, at least to me, seems incomprehensible at first. It makes no sense as a response to Nicodemus' question. And that's a red flag that we need to look a little closer. Right off the bat, we notice that Jesus is talking about seeing the kingdom of God. He's not talking about entering it or being excluded or included. He's just talking about perceiving it. Nicodemus and the other leaders only see the billboards the miracles that validate Jesus' authenticity. They are completely missing the kingdom itself. They are missing the good news. Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus out here. Most translations say Jesus tells Nicodemus that you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. But as you might suspect, the Greek has more nuance than the English. The Greek uses two words. The first one means begotten, if you're thinking in male terms, or birthed, if you're thinking in female terms. In this context, I'd probably choose the word regenerated to cover both bases and capture the idea of it happening a second time. The second word is translated as from above. Now that word can mean from heaven but it can also mean from the beginning or all over again. So in the Greek, what Jesus says could mean two different things. It could mean that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are physically born again, or it could mean no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are regenerated anew from heaven. One meaning is very physical, a bodily sort of thing, and the other is far more spiritual and internal. And I think this is where Nicodemus and Jesus get a little crossways. Nicodemus takes Jesus literally and thinks he's saying you have to be physically reborn as a baby in order to see the kingdom of God. And he's like, what? How could that even happen? Surely you're not saying they would go back into their mother's womb a second time to be born. I bet Jesus chuckles a little on the inside. Jesus says, well, 
to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born of both the water and the spirit. Now notice that Jesus has moved from talking about seeing the kingdom to talking about entering it. He is calling Nicodemus to move past the billboards. And in this context, it seems that water would refer to a human physical earthly birth. Maybe the physical waters that gush from the womb, you know, when when your water breaks. But water could just as easily refer to the earth itself, which, if you remember the Hebrew understanding, was formed from the spirit hovering over the face of the deep and the waters being gathered together. Very primordial imagery. To enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be part of creation. This is the interpretation I lean towards. Either of these understandings would work. Some folks think Jesus is talking about baptism here, but the next sentence pretty much eliminates that possibility. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So whatever imagery Jesus meant by water definitely has to do with our physical created humanity. Nicodemus must still have that totally lost look on his face because Jesus continues This shouldn't be a shock to you, Nicodemus. You can hear the wind blow, but you cannot see it. That's exactly how it is, being born of the Spirit. But Nicodemus just cannot get past the born again part. It's like he can't see past the physical. He sees the billboards, but he cannot see the Spirit. He's not grasping that the kingdom of heaven is spiritual. Remember, he's a Jew's Jew. Like the disciples, he's looking for a physical kingly Messiah come to conquer Israel's enemies. The kingdom of God is right in front of him. He senses it, but he simply cannot lay down his old lens in order to grasp it. Jesus says, oh, Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? I'm telling you, we, presumably meaning Jesus and the disciples, we speak of things we know. We testify about things we've seen. But you will not accept our witness. So if you don't believe me when I talk about earthly things, how will you believe me when I talk of heavenly things? No one has ever gone up into heaven except the one who has come down out of heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, Nicodemus has got to be completely turned around at this point. Jesus has just used his Messiah title, Son of Man, and says he has come down from heaven and is now in heaven, even though he's standing right there in front of Nicodemus. And that should actually make sense to us because Jesus has been saying all along that the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus has been trying to introduce it, us to it. He's been trying to tell us that where God is, Jesus is. And where God is, there is heaven. And Jesus is standing right here. God is here. Then Jesus says, 
All right. Remember how Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness? That's how the son of man must be lifted up. Now, that may sound like a totally crazy thing to say, unless you're a Jew like Nicodemus and you know this story, or you were in uh, with us in the Exodus through Deuteronomy series, and you remember the story from class 22. Way back when the Hebrews weren't really even a nation yet, but were following God around in the wilderness, they became afraid and grumbled to God that they thought, he brought them out to the wilderness to just, just to die of thirst and starvation, even though God had been protecting them and feeding them all along. So the Lord sends snakes among them and the people begin dying from their bites. Now the people only see regular run-of-the-mill venomous deadly snakes, and that's the word they use when they write the story. They see this as a punishment from God. But there are two different Hebrew words for snake. One is this regular word, nachash, and the other is the word seraph, which means fiery serpent. What we lose here in translation is that the people in the story see only the venomous snakes and they use the normal word for that. But the narrator of the story and the Lord within the story use the word seraph. The Lord sends seraphs among the people when they grumble. Why is that word significant? Well, it's because the seraphim are referred to in scripture as being present at the throne of God, moving wherever the Holy Spirit moves. In some places, such as Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10, they are called cherubim, which is plural for cherub. But in Isaiah 6 and elsewhere, they're called seraphim, which is plural for seraph. And from the descriptions, you can tell they are both the same thing. They must have snake-like or perhaps dragon-like bodies, but they're also described as having multiple wings and hands and faces and huge eye-studded gyrating wheels that move with them. They can pick up live holy coal straight from the altar before God. They are terrifying. This, of course, is all imagery from dreams and spiritual visions. This is not literal, physical, on earth sort of imagery. In scripture, the words cherub and seraph seem to be used interchangeably. Cherubim, as far as I can tell, seems to be what they are, while the word seraphim seems to be more of a description of what they look like. I think they are the physical representation of God's holiness. Perhaps a physical representation of the Holy Spirit. That is just my interpretation, so there's definitely room for other views here. So when the people repent of their grumbling, the Lord tells Moses to raise a seraph on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look up at the seraph and be healed. So Moses sets up a bronze snake on a pole. And all the people understand that they are looking at a representation of a seraph, not just a run-of-the-mill snake. The people know what a seraph is. When God gave Moses the instructions 
to, for them to build the tabernacle, God had commanded that two seraphim be carved in gold above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. For the Jewish people, the seraphim have always been symbols of the presence and holiness of God. And that's why the Lord said to put a seraph on a pole so that when the people were bitten, they could look at the seraph and be healed. It was an object lesson in God's power and presence and love for them. And of our choice to look, believe, and be healed. And that's what Jesus is referring to when he says to Nicodemus, remember how Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness? That's how the son of man must be lifted up. So everyone who believes can have eternal life in him. And this context is important to what Jesus tells Nicodemus next. He says, because God loved the world so much, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have life forever and ever. Notice the context. When the Hebrews were dying from snakebite in the desert, God provided an image of the holy seraph, an image representing fire and movement and utter holiness, an image that I think represents the Holy Spirit, so they could look and believe and be healed. This time, instead of the seraph, God provides Jesus, his only son. And the reason is the same. So we can look on him and believe and be healed and made whole. That word perish can mean all sorts of things. Since it's paired with life in this phrase, I expect it is meant to be a literal contrast. We have death, but God wants us to have life. Jesus continues, for God did not send his son into the world to pass judgment on it, but to save it through him. Just like the seraph in the wilderness was not a judgment at all, but was put there solely to save the people from death. That's how it is with Jesus, too. We already know the Greek word save means to be rescued, preserved, healed, and made whole. God wants to heal us and make us whole. This has been Jesus' message all along. He's literally spelling it out for Nicodemus. Jesus says, Whoever believes in him, meaning the son, is not judged. But whoever does not believe in him has already been judged. Now, wait a minute. This seems harsh. But that's because we're thinking in our own human terms of judgment. Remember that Jesus and the Holy Spirit have taught us that God's way of judgment is very different than our way. We judge in order to separate people and punish them. But throughout the Bible, God has spoken words of healing and restoration. God has shown that his way of judging involves a refining fire, a holiness that burns away all that is dross and leaves only what is pure and clean and whole. God's judgment sets everything right again. Jesus has taught the disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that everything hidden in darkness will be revealed in the light 
thus stripping the darkness of its power. Stripping evil of its power is what judgment means to God and to Jesus. And right here to Nicodemus, Jesus pronounces the verdict over those who do not believe and are judged already. He says, this is the verdict, that the light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light because the things they did were evil. They are afraid their deeds will be exposed. But the one doing truth comes towards the light. So what they've done in God can be seen. That is the whole verdict. These are Jesus' words. He specifically says, this is the verdict. Do we see any hell or fiery brimstone in here? No, we do not. Jesus says, we already know whether we're doing good or evil. When light comes, we either hide or we rejoice according to our deeds. We have already judged ourselves. And that apparently leaves Nicodemus speechless. He heads back off into the night to ponder what Jesus has told him. He came this evening suspecting that the Pharisees were doing wrong and that Jesus is actually from God. And Jesus has now spoken plainly to him. What will Nicodemus decide? Remember, Nicodemus, we'll run into him again. This is such a huge story, and it contains one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16. Let's talk about all of this in our breakout groups. There's no need to read the passage in the box. You can skip straight to question one. All righty, looks like everybody's back. What did you all think? Well, Renee summed it up best. She said, this is a conundrum. (laughs) Talk to me about that. (laughs) To me, it's, there is so much in this lesson that is so different than I ever was taught or thought about. And so when we're going through the lesson and reading it and and then the questions, and it's like, I don't know how I think anymore. (laughs) That's not bad. I always think think the Holy Spirit moves best when we're not like clinging on to something for dear life. (laughs) The the first step I've heard the first step toward progress is confusion. Yeah. 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 It's just kind of breaking it open. This of all passages has such heavy shellac on it, right? Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of fun with this. We we really enjoyed these questions, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, On the first one, how is Jesus like the image of the seraph in the wilderness? We discussed, remember the story back a while where the woman was healed by touching the cloak of Jesus. 
And Jesus said, wait a minute, it's not my cloak that healed you, it's your faith and what's within you that healed you. Right. And we liken that to the seraph in the wilderness. It wasn't this bronze snake that healed them, but their faith in the bronze snake. Exactly. Okay. Their faith that God had provided for their healing. Yes. And then we took it a little further. I don't know if you want to go here. Absolutely. I, this is open season. Okay. Well, that's that imagery of the seraph, right? Both Mary and myself related that to a medical Kedusa. Right. And that it's half and then the other half is God, you know? And I was telling the story about, I have a situation where it flares, but when I go to the ER, because I'm in the presence of a healer, it subsides and they couldn't diagnose it for days, you know, and I kept winding up at the ER because it was so bad. And then I get there, I would calm down because I was in the presence of the healer and I relaxed. Ultimately, they figured out the diagnosis. We deal with it, you know, but that isn't that what Jesus is? Your faith in Jesus, your faith in the seraph, your faith in the healers it's from within you that you control the circumstance of your environment does that make sense yeah so that one was easy for us <laughs> did you all see did you all see any did did the other group or did other people see other things um other um ways that jesus is like the seraph in the wilderness i said that they both represented the glory of god mm -hmm. like the direct glory of god right the seraph not the not the bronze image you know and and it's just like we don't need to get tangled up in jesus what color where has his eyes like who cares you know <laughs> that's not the point right Right. The point was this is this is how God is communicating his love to us. Right? Making it accessible. I, you know, one of the things that struck me as I was um, thinking about this was that in the for the Hebrews back in the Moses story, those those seraphs that had been carved over the mercy seat and and, and were gold um, were representations of these heavenly beings present in the throne room of God. Okay, and that that I think is just a representation of the Holy Spirit of God moving. You know, could be creatures. I don't know, but the regular he Hebrew person would never lay eyes on that. Because that is is in the holy of holies. Um, it's it's I I I don't know. I, don't, I guess they would see it when it moved, but it's not something accessible to them. And so when the seraph was on the pole, that was that holiness, that symbol of holiness coming out of the sanctuary area and in among the people to for the purpose of healing them. 
And that's exactly what I think Jesus was. Jesus came out of heaven from the same very self same throne room of God, you know, into our midst to heal us. I see a ton of similarity there. Did y'all see other things? So, huh? oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What resonates with me, Gail, is last time and today. You have continued to nurture us into that space of Jesus here and now, you know, and and you just echoed it again and your comments to us. And I, while we need those symbols, you know, I think that's a beautiful part of organized religion is symbols and we, we gravitate towards that. But when we step into the fullness of Jesus and God and what it means to be in the mind of Christ. We see them all around us. We we don't have to, and I think I've said this before, we came from Sacramento and we're in a Franciscan Catholic parish and it was a beautiful church built on the um, designs of the missions. And it's just stunning. People would walk in and just it was breathtaking, you know, the stained glass and the history and the gorgeous. But when you're there for a while, and I know you have all experience, and I have it every time I come to this class, my gaze drops down. And I see Jesus present in the people. Journey mm-hmm. with. I see the miracle. I see the healing. And it's not in the stained glass windows. It's not in the beautiful altar. It's not in the gold monstrance. It's the person sitting two rows in front of me that I know is estranged from their son. And this was a real experience. He was lost in addiction. And I was blessed to sit behind them one Sunday and saw them have a sacred moment coming back together and embracing. If that wasn't in our midst and I don't know what is you know and I love that you keep bringing us to that place to say it's here it's now we are in the kingdom but we need to be awake our nuts need to be open our ears need to hear I I appreciate that thank you yeah this whole story of Nicodemus was one of the kingdom is standing right in front of you Nicodemus (laughs) how can you miss this Right. I have a weird, the- I guess it's a theological question. The teaching that I had after when I was going to, you know, because I was not fortunate to ha- be taught religion as a kid. It was, it was after I was an adult and it, in my own brain, it seemed that when Jesus was on earth, that he and God were two different people. Hmm. Is that, that was kind of what I was taught. Is that anywhere? You know what? Jesus explained it himself as I was in heaven. And God sent me. While I'm here, I am 
just keeping my eyes on God, on the father. He always called him the father, you know, keeping my eyes on, the, mm-hmm. on my father and watching what he's doing and doing what he's doing. Whatever he does, I does. Wherever he goes, I go. Um, that's how Jesus saw himself on earth. And he said, I am in this passage today. He said, I am in heaven. I came from heaven and I am in heaven. So, you know, he's standing right there in front of Nicodemus. I think what he's saying is that I'm carrying heaven. Heaven is here. Heaven is all around you. God is here. God is all around you. Don't make this great big distinction between bodies, you know, your physical body and where God is. All right, I have a question. I don't know if that answered. And there may not be an answer to your question, Renee. You know, okay. it's something to think about. Um, but I really think that God, you know, our bodies, some of our bodies never even make it through the birth process, right? Um, mm-hmm. Some of our bodies, all of our bodies get ill, get died, whatever, things happen. But we, who, whatever it is that is our essence, is always with God, always. In the same way, Jesus is always with God. This kind of went with her question. Um, and we talked about this in our group. I had always been taught that when Jesus came to earth, he laid aside his Shekinah glory. Right. There's a passage so later that death, we'll get to. We'll get to a passage later where he lays, he empties himself. Kenosis. Right. I said we hadn't gotten there yet. But um, when he died and rose again, he took back his ship and glory. So I was looking at this whole thing with the serpent being raised and Jesus being crucified and both representing the glory of God that the whole thing all kind of joins together in this, you were talking about heaven, Jesus is God, God is heaven, wherever God is, that's where heaven is, and God is everywhere, so is heaven everywhere? I think there is very, I think the, I think we're porous, heaven and earth. I think we're poor. So I think that's what the, remember Jacob's dream, Jacob's ladder, where he saw the angels just going up and down, back and forth, heaven and earth. You know, it was very porous. I think we, as, as humans, we like to draw little black lines around everything. And uh, I don't think that's how God creates things. I remember my mother, my mother is an artist and she told me, Gail, nature never draws straight black lines, you know? Um, that's just not how it is. So, so what about um, the judgment and the heavenly verdict? Um, did you get to question two at all, which was how does Jesus explain judgment and the heavenly verdict? Um, and is it different than what you might've always thought? Yes. Or- <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about it. We talked about, I I don't like talking so much. It's okay. I want to hear. (laughs) So anybody else jump in. But we talked about a little bit about how 
the part about for God gave me his only begotten son for this purpose, not to pass judgment on the world, but to save it through me. When Jesus came, the people had all the rules. They had all the laws. They were busy with the rules, enforcing the rules, following the rules, keeping the rules straight. It was overwhelming, obviously, for many people. And that was all in place. And there was judgment amongst all that and everything. And Jesus is saying, I came to circumvent that. I am here for you to, to understand you need to love God and love each other like you do yourself and love yourself. And this is going to be much simpler, people, if you just focus on these things. And I'm here to guide you there. Some of us get it. Some of us don't. Some of us get it and, and wander. And we have to get it again, you know. Mm-hmm. But we, we touched on that. Anybody else? I think I shared with you that um, Gary and I did Course in Miracles for 10, 11 years. And one of the tenets of Course in Miracles is we as humans are want to judge. But remember, when you are called into that space, and I'm paraphrasing, remember, you don't have all the information. And what, how I took that teaching was it calls me to an interior life. Before I start putting judgment out on others, I am called to an interior life where Christ resides in me, and I need to rid myself of my own judgment of my frailties and my, you know. Um, I thought it's interesting because we talk a lot in here about Jesus said we're not supposed to judge. And we have so many verses from Paul that say don't judge. And a lot of times as Christians will say it's not my job to judge. That's God's job. Yep, it's- But these verses contradict that, that God's not here to judge us. We're here to judge ourselves. God's here to save us. God's here to save us, to heal us, to make us whole. And the fact that where God is, is light, will reveal whatever is hidden, whatever we've hidden and buried and are doing in secret to one another or to ourselves. All God is doing is revealing what is already there. And God has come to heal us just exactly what you were describing a minute ago about the, all the different, uh, or was it Julia about all the different rules that, you know, that, that, that were in the law and people following the rules and how hard it became and, And I was thinking, you know what, that is not a very far off description of many of the churches I've experienced, right? That is not just something the Jews were doing. (laughs) That is something we do. That is something we do. And we are called 
to lay that down. We are called to resist that. We are called to speak words of healing, to to restore skinned knees, you know, to to pick people up and dust them off and point them in a direction that is where people are not just making rules. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, I'm going to, if you're feeling a big weight on your shoulders, that should be a clue. It's not me. You know, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I, I have a niece that's at the Vatican as we speak. Wow. And I am so excited to talk to her when she comes back. This is a young woman that lives in Fort Worth. Her journey has been amazing. I have watched her as her auntie and prayed for her at times and applauded her at times and, you know, life. And she's a young woman finding her way. She's in her late 20s. And she was in the QAnon movement for a while. She was in a cult. She moved out of it. She went to Baptist Seminary. Um, then she went to the Episcopal Seminary. I mean, she was raised Catholic. And she's now resting in the Anglican Church and was invited to the Vatican to be trained on exorcism as a representative of the Anglican Church. So she is in Rome as we speak right now. Do you know how excited I am for her to come back and for us to talk about this lesson today? Because while I think she has, she's a woman of faith, she always has been, she's wandered, had quite a journey, but she, I know her, she's a woman of faith, a young woman of faith, she is going to do great things, but I, at the same time, there's a part of me given this lesson today that I go, I went back to school and became a counselor later in life. And I know the healing comes from within. It's what we were talking about. You know, Jesus doesn't judge. He gives us the light to heal ourselves. And then we can go forth and be present to others. And I'm going to be so curious to hear from Teresa. Mm -hmm. They taught her and what her experience was. Don't you think that's interesting? I just, you know, I, I, boy, talk about cognitive dissonance for me right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's a job I would want for sure. <laughs> you know, there's, there, Christianity has such broad arms, right? There are Thank so you. many people with so many different views. And over the years, this thing has been called heresy and that thing has been called heresy. And, you know, and sometimes when you look underneath it, you can see, oh, okay, I see which one of these choices um, benefited the powers that be, you know, <laughs> at the time, yeah. right? You know, you can kind of see why the decision was made the way it was. And, you know, all of that, all of that needs to fall off of us. And we need to keep our eyes steadily focused on the Father, our Father, and move with the Spirit. Watch to see where God is at work in the people in the pew two rows ahead of you. That's mm -hmm. where we need to be, right? All righty. Well, we've reached time and um, I love you. And so glad <laughs> you're here and we will see you next week.